0: You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again. This is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to my July 2021 edition of Editor's Picks. I again want to thank you for listening to this podcast. This month, we have a slightly different feature. As we will begin with an interview of Dr. Jessica Whitfield giving an overview of the paper of which she is first author, and the paper is entitled, Feminization of the Rheumatology Workforce, a Longitudinal Evaluation of Patient Volumes, Practice Sizes, and Physician Remunerations.
1: So we compared the clinical activity and compensation between female and male rheumatologists, by conducting a population-based study of rheumatologists practicing in Ontario, Canada and their patient visits over a 15-year period. And we found that on average, male rheumatologists saw more unique patients each year, and they had significantly higher patient volumes. And as a result, male rheumatologists had significantly higher earnings. And even after controlling for age and year, Female gender was still associated with lower practice sizes and practice volumes. And considering that rheumatology workforces are already strained by too few physicians in face of the growing burden of rheumatic diseases, and that our findings highlight key differences in volume of services between males and females, it's very important to account for the demographic shifts that are occurring within the workforce when undertaking future rheumatology workforce planning to sh- to ensure that our population needs are being met.
0: This paper, accompanied by an editorial by Dr. Grace White and she will be discussing Dr. Wittefield's paper and her editorial is entitled The Evolving Workforce in Rheumatology, The Effect of Gender.
2: Yeah, so you know, I think it's really important that we understand that as a population, we're shifting uh, who does what. And what we've seen in medicine now, both in Canada and the U.S. as well, is that there's been a shift. There are more younger people coming into rheumatology, and there are more women coming into rheumatology. In the U.S., for instance, seventy percent of our fellow trainees are women, and so we have to now to think about how do we do things differently, and is there a way for us to maintain equity, or in fact a equity. So I think what this article really highlighted um, are a couple of things. One is that women do things differently uh, in, in many cases, but also that compensation is shifted. Work volume is shifted. What we've seen in the US is that the kinds of patients that we take care of, the complexity of the encounter is different and that we may need to rethink how we look at rheumatology, especially since we have uh, patients with chronic diseases that we, we carry over a lifetime. As I say, we partner with patients on their journey and we wanna make sure that there is equity and an understanding of the value that everybody brings. And so this article really highlighted some of the granular differences in terms of compensation, uh, the workforce, the kinds of practice styles that occur. But I think there's a way for us to really think about the value not just the volume, and have equitable compensation based on value-based care and not just on volume-based care. And really, that's one of the things that we want to highlight as we seek uh, really sort of equity in pay that's independent of gender. That may be more a U.S. issue than it, it is often seen as uh, ex-U.S., um, but really it carries forth in the conversations that we have and how we structure care. And I think in Canada, as it was highlighted, as you have a shift towards more, more women coming in, maybe working different numbers of hours, a workforce analysis needs to occur to say, will we have enough people in place to handle the delivery of health care using the current model that we have?
0: I hope you enjoyed listening to both doctors, Whitfield and Wright. I will now move along to the next paper to highlight this month, which is entitled The Rheumatoid Arthritis Gene Express and Signature Among Women Who Improve or Worsen During Pregnancy, a pilot study, and the co-first authors are Dr. Pathy and Wright for their colleagues. Disease activity in rheumatoid arthritis tends to improve with pregnancy, however, in some patients it may worsen. To date, there are no known biomarkers to predict how pregnancy will alter disease activity in an individual woman with RA. The aims of this pilot study, therefore, were to one, determine if the pregnancy gene expression profile during pregnancy differed between women who improve or worsen during their pregnancy, and two, to determine if gene expression signatures are altered during pregnancy when RA improves or worsens. The authors therefore determined gene expression profiles in 11 RA patients and five controls prior to pregnancy and then again during the third trimester. They found that six other RA patients improved by the Third trimester, three worsened, and in two patients, the changes were negligible. They found that 89 genes were differentially expressed prior to pregnancy in IRA women who improved as compared to controls, while in the group of IRA women who worsened during pregnancy, there were 429 different genes that were differentially expressed as compared to controls. Please read this article to see how the gene expression profile differed in those who improved as to those who worsened, how the gene expression profile changed during pregnancies, which pathways differed between the groups and the potential clinical and pathogenesis in influence of this work. The next article to highlight is entitled Relation of NSAIDs, DMARDs, and TNF Inhibitors for Ankylosing Spondylitis and Psoriatic Arthritis to Risk of Total Hip and Knee Arthroplasty, and the paper is by Stovall in Collins both ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis can lead to total hip and or knee replacement. It therefore would be reasonable to assume that effective therapy may alter the need for these surgeries. The aim of this study was to determine whether therapy with NSAIDs, conventional DMARDS, an anti-TNF agent, altered the need or total hip and or knee arthroplasty in patients with AS or PSA. To achieve this aim, the investigators used a nested case control study of data they obtained from the Optum Labs data warehouse over a 24-year period from 1994 to 2018. This data warehouse contains patients enrolled in both commercial and Medicare Advantage systems from a multiple age group, multiple ethnicities, and geographic areas around the US. Using this data, the investigators then examined if treatment with conventional DMART or anti-TIF agents alone or in combination was associated with differences in total knee or hip arthroplasty in patients with AS or PSA. They found that in the AS group, when they compared 444 pa- patients with total hip or knee arthroplasty to 1,613 controls, they did not find a significant difference, reduction in the odds of having total hip or knee arthroplasty with any combination of NSAID DMARDS or anti-TNF agents alone. This was also true when they compared 1,003 cases of arthroplasty to 3,793 controls with PSA. Please read this article as the authors discuss potential reasons for what was at least to me a surprising finding of no difference in the rate of arthroplasty in either cohort based on therapies used. The next two articles to highlight are both COVID-19 related articles. The first is entitled Giant Cell Arteritis and COVID-19 Similarities and discriminators, a systematic literature re- review, and is by Meta and colleagues. Giant cell arthritis is the most common form of vasculitis seen in patients greater than 50 years of age. As we know, failure to treat early may lead to blindness, but of course, overdiagnosis may lead to mistreating the true cause of a patient's symptoms. This is particularly important during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, which in many countries is now more common in people 50 years and over than is giant cell arteritis. In this timely article, the authors performed two systematic reviews of the literature and clinical features of GCA and COVID-19 from the literature up to April 2020. They found there were many overlapping features and in particular headache, fever, cough, and an elevated CRP. In contrast, they found that the presence of jaw claudication and visual loss, as well as platelet count and lymphocyte counts may be more helpful in differentiating these two diseases. Please read this article, which provides more details, including an excellent figure highlighting the overlapping and distinguishing features between GCA and COVID-19. There is a second figure where the authors propose a clinical checklist to help assess patients with possible GCA during the COVID-19 pandemic. The second article on COVID-19 and the last to highlight this month is entitled Risk of Severe COVID-19 Infection in Patients with Inflammatory Rheumatic Disease and is by Bohelier, Corel and colleagues and this paper is important as it examines the risk of hospitalization based on the type of rheumatic disease and therapy. These investigators performed a single center retrospective examination of all patients with an inflammatory rheumatic disease fault at a single center in Madrid, Spain. Of the 2,300 and 15 patients admitted for severe SARS-CoV-2 pneumonia over a two-month period in 2020, 41 had an inflammatory rheumatic disease. The authors found that the odds ratio for hospital admission for rheumatic disease patients was 1.87 as compared to the general population and was higher in patients with Sjogren's syndrome, vasculitis, and SLA, but not for patients with RA. The author outlined which therapies were and were not associated with an increased risk of hospitalization in, in these patients. Please read this article as it adds to the growing literature of the risk of severe COVID-19 in patients with rheumatic disease and the therapies which may be associated with this increased risk. The findings of the article, of course, must be taken in the context of national guidelines, which will help you advise your patients on their individual risk of developing severe COVID-19 infection based on both their diagnosis and the current therapy. This month I've added a new feature to the podcast as I will highlight our images in rheumatology. There are two images for July. The first is entitled Perforating Rheumatoid Nodule Mimicking Malignant Soft Tissue Mass of the Forearm. This highlights a 83-year-old woman with a history of seropositive RA who was treated with oral methotrexate. She presented with a rapidly growing mass on her forearm, and the image shows both the mass and the histology. The second image is entitled a recurrent central band keratopathy in a child. This image describes a 6-year-old boy who presented with a painful red eye, facial edema, nephrotic range proteinuria, and macroscopic hematuria. A renal biopsy showed C3 glomerulonephritis, which responded to treatment. However, the uveitis continued to be persistent and led to a keratopathy. Please see the image of Bancarotopathy and the interesting case. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all the articles of the July 2021 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in print or online. The online edition is available at www.jroom.org. And please watch my interviews of the senior author of selected COVID-19 articles, as well as the highlighted article today. These are available at our website and on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions on these highlighted articles or any of the articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. Please listen next month to the August edition of Editors Highlights, and stay healthy.